1: Britain has left the EU. After 47 years of membership, the UK's trading, economic and legal ties with the bloc have come to an end. With the dawn of 2021, a new era has begun.
2: What we wanted was not a rupture, but a resolution.
1: A resolution of the old, tired, vexed question of Britain's political relations with Europe. Welcome to Payne's Politics. Your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be taking an in-depth look at Brexit, now that it's finally a reality. We'll be examining how Boris Johnson, who you heard enthusiastically at the top there, secured a trade deal at the last moment. What has already changed and what is coming down the tracks we'll also be examining the business and economic changes resulting from the new UK EU relationship and what's going to dominate UK politics in the coming year. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor George Parker, public policy editor Peter Foster, and special guest Ali Rennison, who is head of EU and trade policy at the Institute of Directors Business Group. So hello all and happy new year. Happy new year.
3: Happy new year. Happy new year. Happy new year.
1: So 2021 is finally upon us. I think we're all quite pleased to see the back of 2020. And it wouldn't be a new year without thinking about some resolutions and predictions. So George, first up, what's ahead in the new year?
4: Well, I mean, there's going to be a very difficult next few months, isn't there, with coronavirus. And it's going to be very difficult. There's going to be a big spike in unemployment into the summer. But can I sort of start on an optimistic note that I think once we're through the worst of this, I think the second half of 2021,
1: it's going to be a massive party. And I, for one, can't wait for it to start happening. Well, Pete, can you keep us on an optimistic note or something different? What's going to be your prediction for the year ahead?
2: Oh, I definitely agree with George. The second half looks much better than the first half. Uh, I, th- I think my prediction is probably that the debate will move away from Brexit and probably towards the Union after Scottish elections. Where Brexit does pinch, it probably will pinch in Northern Ireland and in Ireland, both you know, for South and North in terms of trade. So I think we might talk a quite a lot a bit about the Union this year. And Ali, speaking to us from Washington, what's your prediction for
1: the
3: year ahead? Well, now that you've mentioned my locale, I'll probably have to do something along the lines of, you know, where is the Biden administration going to end up working with the UK? And I think that climate policy is probably going to be one of the, some of the unifying factors, shall we say? I don't know how many there will be, but I think that will be one of them.
1: Well, my prediction is going to be with those local elections in May, I think the government is going to come in for quite a shellacking that I think the handling of coronavirus will bounce back on Boris Johnson quite badly. They're not going to do well in England's local councils. And I think it will precipitate a cabinet reshuffle following that as Boris tries to complete the reset of his government that began with the departure of Dominic Cummings this year. But, of course, we couldn't have a podcast without Brexit. So let's get into the main topic. Four years since the UK voted to leave the EU, Brexit has finally and fully happened. At 11pm on Thursday night, Britain ended its legal ties as a member of the bloc and moved to becoming a full third country. New freedoms and new regulatory red tape have become a reality. The break with the bloc was an amicable one as the government struck a trade deal on Christmas Eve. Instead of a messy no-deal departure, a 1,200-page trade deal would dictate the terms of the country's trading relations. While Boris Johnson was very happy with his deal, the opposition leader Keir Starmer was not, despite the fact he
2: still voted for it. A thin deal is better than no deal. And not implementing this deal would mean immediate tariffs and quotas with the EU, which will push up prices and drive businesses to the wall. It will mean huge gaps in security, a free-for-all on workers' rights and environmental protections, and less stability for the Northern Ireland protocol. So George, since we last spoke on the podcast, we had
1: that big news of the deal. How did it finally all come together? It was all rather last moment, and I think it had a couple of big British concessions in there.
4: Yeah, it was all very last moment on Christmas Eve, and the deal was finally secured at about five o'clock. And I've been hanging around all day, looking at my phone, waiting for the deal to be announced, nipped off to Sainsbury's, And I was in Sainsbury's when the deal was actually announced. I had to bomb back on my bike to ask questions at the uh, prime ministerial press conference. But yes, I mean, in the end, it went down to a haggle about fisheries. And in the end, the UK gave more ground on the fisheries than many would have liked, particularly Scottish fishermen. Basically, the deal was done where the volume of fish that the EU boats were able to catch was cut by 25%, which was a lot less than uh, many had actually hoped for. So it was a concession by the British on fish. I think the British underestimated the significance of the fishing issue throughout the whole negotiation. But really, the deal fell into shape earlier on, once the UK and the EU were able to work out this mechanism for managing how the two sides would diverge over time on regulation. That was the big ideological issue. And I think once that had been settled, then the writing was on the wall and a deal looks inevitable,
1: really. But of course, it dragged on right almost into Christmas itself. Peter, what did you make of the deal? You've examined and written about a lot of the implications of this during 2020. And the end result was pretty much as we expected. And as Keir Starmer described it, it is a thin deal because the UK really wasn't asking for too much. It did get quota-free and tariff-free access to the EU single market, but very little on some other areas. No,
2: indeed. It is actually what Boris Johnson said he wanted, which is a Canada-style deal. It's interesting that since getting the deal, uh, he's been in denial about what that means, saying there are no technical barriers to trade. There are lots of technical barriers to trade. And indeed, some goods will still pay tariffs because they won't meet the so-called rules of origin threshold, which mean that goods have to be about 50% UK made in order to get zero tariff access. But I mean, in the main, it is, as you say, what we expected. It's turning back the clock to the days before we were in the single market. So, Plant and animal products will require export health certificates. There will be customs declarations on everything going into the EU immediately. You have staggered checks coming in. But just before midnight on New Year's Eve, the government published 70 pages of details of the border operating model. 28 different steps to export a fish to the EU. When, you know, back in the day, you just lobbed it in the back of a van and drove it across the channel and into France. So it is a substantial change to the way we trade with Europe there's no doubt about that
1: and Ali obviously the deal has got those provisions in goods there but the main criticism has been that it has very little provision for services which as we know make up 80% of the UK's economy and again this is something that feels like it's going to be a debating topic going forward about how to address this
3: Yeah, I mean, it's important to say that the coverage is there. It's probably wider than most people would uh, give it credit for. But I saw sort of the chief negotiator, Lord Frost, David Frost, talking about how it covers areas that actually others hadn't. But of course, the depth is the issue, um, not just the width. And it's not the sort of thing for services, for example. I think people tend to think, oh, well, there's no single market in services. And I think from a sectoral coverage perspective, no, it's not the same as goods. But there are certain things that make a big difference for services if you don't have what's called sort of freedom of establishment. And suddenly now we're sort of into sector-specific kind of reservations and limitations in the text, which is not the kind of thing that businesses used to dealing with when they're wanting to sort of go and sell their services, whether it's online or in person in Europe. And it's not just that, I think, you know, we have to remember that in terms of agri-food, I think there was a lot of disappointment that there's such a heavy degree of control for goods in what we call products of animal origin passing between the EU and the UK. So I think people were quite disappointed that it wasn't just on services. There was a lack of sort of depth. And I think that comes back to the fact that we were always limited by the fixation on time. That's really, I think, what chief determinant of everything here was.
1: And the other thing linked to that, Ali, of course, is financial services as well. And this is one of the glaring omissions from the Brexit deal there. that There was nothing in there. And some people say, well, the government didn't want anything. But we now know that the talks will continue and that they're hoping to try and get some kind of memorandum of understanding by March. But that does give this three month gap. You know, what happens to the City of London between now and March and what kind of things could be in that agreement?
3: Well, I think financial services is the one sector that's probably not worrying about itself too much because a lot of the firms really made a lot of their contingency plans. They've got much bigger profit margins than a lot of other sectors. And so we're able to effectively make those contingency plans um, open up operations in Europe. So I think in terms of the equivalence provisions, and again, equivalence in terms of replacing what we have now or had until today, uh, passporting, which means that effectively you don't need to have a physical location in other European countries to be able to access or service clients. That's the big change. And I think once upon a time, a previous um, UK government was trying to sort of replace that to some extent either super equivalence or super mutual recognition, and that's not going to happen. You know, it remains to be seen whether we end up like the Swiss, which is we have kind of unilateral equivalence decisions that can be withdrawn on a moment's notice, or there's something more stable there. I think in terms of what we call market access, no one is really sort of betting on cooperation, on equivalence, or particularly between the regulators going forward to continue to access Europe. I think people made those decisions a long time ago in terms of how to continue being able to operate in the EU market, but it's certainly going to be, from a stable perspective, I think if you're interested in stability, that cooperation and dialogue is really important.
1: And Peter, are there going to be other areas where those talks will keep on going there? Because obviously the government and Boris Johnson is very keen to say Brexit is done. We can move on and talk about other things now. But if we've learned anything after the past four years, Brexit is never really done. It just keeps on going and there'll be more conversations to happen. Where else could we see the
2: issue going next, do you think? It is interesting. And actually one of the things is yet to be determined, is how active these committees will be. Will we actually be in a constant, frictional conversation? These are the committees that define the deal, that regulate it. And manage the deal and manage the whole question of the level playing field and divergence in different sectors of the deal. And it's not clear to me, actually, whether they will become very political and people will start complaining and wanting to know what's being decided in these committees in our name. Will there be kind of parliamentary level scrutiny? So I think that is a big unknown. Will sleeping dogs be left to lie or will these be quite active and grinding these committees. There are areas, I think, still where we might see some movement. Ali mentioned SPS, phytosanitary, the animal health stuff. You know, are we going to see a fix, for example, on the ability of UK meat producers to send meat chilled into the EU? Sausages, for example, mints. At the moment, it has to be frozen. You know, will all pigs need trichinella tests? Will all animals need 40 days on farm before slaughter? All these rules that are currently going to be applied to the SBS, the animal health section, those could, I think, still be potentially eased by agreement over time. But again, that will depend on goodwill and on on operation, and also on where we go in other trade deals, for example, with the United States. So recording this on January
1: the 1st, we've seen the first images of trucks rolling off the ferries with their new required paperwork But the real test is going to come when business resumes fully next week. And as Rod McKenzie of the Road Haulage Association told Sky News, that will be the real test about what Brexit is going to look like.
4: What it means for hauliers and what it means for businesses is a mountain of red tape. We don't know whether the IT systems are ready for all this. Uh, We don't know whether there are enough customs agents to handle all this paperwork. It is very confusing and incredibly complex. Uh, especially compared to what we've been used to. And there may well be delays both with hauliers and also at the factory uh, end of it all or the warehouse end of
2: it all in terms of form filling.
1: Well, George, you can look at the actual UK's withdrawal from the EU and just see it as adding a whole load of red tape. And I guess this is where the knock-on to the UK's productivity and growth comes from, the idea that everyone's going to have to spend time filling in all these forms. And Boris Johnson hasn't been exactly truthful this week when he's talked about what this deal would mean in terms of non-tariff barriers. Well, no,
4: he said that the deal would remove non-tariff barriers. And he was challenged on that repeatedly by Keir Starmer in the House of Commons in the emergency debate on Wednesday to retract that claim. And Boris Johnson refused to do that. And You know, ministers, including Boris Johnson, like to talk about changes at the border and new systems. But in fact, I mean, Peter and Ali have been talking about it. There's going to be a vast array of new checks and forms to be filled in at the border from January the 1st. And the government reckons that, you know, possibly 50 percent of SMEs are not ready for this. And it's possible some of those SMEs will put stuff on trucks without the right paperwork and it will be turned back and there could be disruption at the port. Equally insidiously, I think what will happen is that lots of companies will just look at it and think, This is far too complicated, I'm not going to do it anymore. And it's that sort of insidious corrosion of Britain's competitiveness and enterprise, I think, which could be the lasting consequence of all this. And on the very eve of the uh, changes coming into effect, the government published a 70 page document coming up with case studies of exactly what you have to do if you want to sell stuff. And there was a particularly Grim looking one if you wanted to sell fish into the European market with a flow chart that ran to two pages. You know, the vast number of forms, these agencies you are going to have to interact with that no one's ever heard of before. It really brought home, I think, to people exactly what it is that's been thrown up that people haven't necessarily in the wider public been talking about very much.
3: And this is just about trying to be straight with people because it, this is what you need to actually help people prepare and adjust. It's not just been for its own sake. You know, I think. When the Prime Minister mentioned that kind of there will be no non-tariff barriers, I think it was actually in a speech, which was quite something to read. It wasn't sort of off the cuff. It was actually written down by someone. And the best I could come up with, not in any way of an endorsement, was that maybe it was the UK government or the Prime Minister trying to effectively say, well, we're not putting the barriers in place. This is the EU placing non-tariff barriers. That's the best I could come up with, because and this isn't sort of a remainery point, it's genuinely one about how do you make sure people are adjusting and planning and ready. The more spin that people hear like that, the less they think they have to adjust. You know, there's an inevitable tension between, on the one hand, saying it's all effectively going to be fine and and not the end of the world, and actually then trying to make sure that people who hear that message behind closed doors, there was always with officials, you know, this was the message from us as business groups and the officials themselves and ministers were saying it to us. There was a real concern that businesses weren't going to be ready. And weren't taking it seriously enough. Well, how much can you do that without the actual full detail to adjust to in the middle of a pandemic? But, you know, there is a tension there. If if the public message that business is hearing is it's not really a big deal, that doesn't really instill in the urgency to respond and adapt. Again, this stuff isn't the end of the world, but it is, in the immediate sense, a real impact. It makes the impact worse than it needs to be, I think. We've already seen Stena Line, this ferry operator, tweeting this morning that they've had to turn back a number of loads bound from Holyhead to Ireland because they didn't have the correct document.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. It's not the end of the world, but it's a big deal if you're a small company. And I think one of the things, yes, we all focus on queues, etc. But a lot of this is going to be about what stops happening. I had an email from a chemical company that makes cosmetic chemicals saying, you know, they had done their last truckload of exports from the UK into the EU. We sent the driver off to Dover. The chief executive wrote to me with tunnocks, tea cakes and Christmas cakes. It's emotional after 30 years. I hoped it wouldn't come to this. But ultimately, they've decided because the UK has opted out of the EU's REACH chemical certification system and decided to build its own REACH version, Breach, for a billion pounds worth of cost to the chemical industry. She's decided it's not worth it. And it's going to be actually journalistically quite challenging to track all the things that are not happening, that stop happening as a result of the frictions. Because as Ali says, in aggregate, it's not the end of the world, but I think it does create a kind of marginal hassle factor for a lot of businesses. And it will work the other way, where EU businesses look at the marginal hassle factor of dealing with the UK, of let's say even services, getting a UK fashion model to do a shoot in Milan. Do I want to go through the hassle? I would like X model from the London, but you know what? It's just easier to get someone from Paris or Frankfurt. And I think that is going to be a big factor. And it won't be spectacular, but over time, it will be, I think, what defines the impact of Brexit. But well, George, the flip side of all this, of
1: course, is the regulatory freedom, which Boris Johnson prized above all else when trying to strike this Brexit deal. And he made much of it in the House of Commons. And it's really the centrepiece of what he's saying is we can decide what direction we're going to go in. But so far, we haven't really heard much about what that's going to be, what we're actually going to change. And I guess that will be part of the political debate in the year ahead. What ideas are kicking around government? What do you make of them? Well, I think that's the point,
4: isn't it? That the impact of Brexit, the economic hit, has been felt already. And you know, the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, estimates that 4% of GDP has been lost as a result of it. But what is the government going to do to try to make up for that hit? And if you read some of the things that Boris Johnson says and some of the interviews he gives and speak to some of the Brexiteers, you get the sense that a lot more work has gone into the idea of sovereignty and what that might mean in a fairly theoretical way and a lot less thought has been given to what you're actually going to do with that sovereignty when it comes. And I was speaking to Marc Francois from the European Research Group, the chairman, who said, Well, now it's up to government departments to do some brainstorming to try to work out what they're going to do with this freedom. Well, you think, well, you've had four and a half, five years to think about it. Surely you must have some ideas. And you read the Prime Minister's words on this, and he often talks about free ports. Well, free ports are things that you can already do inside the European Union, and economists will certainly question whether. They just shift economic activity from one place to another. You have sort of symbolic things like, for example, the um, decision to go to zero VAT on sanitary products, the so-called tampon tax, which was done on January the 1st, sort of symbolic things to show that things are happening. Boris Johnson talks about raising animal welfare standards by banning live animal exports. So a whole load of piecemeal things, but none of them really amount to very much in terms of transforming the competitiveness of the UK – and this is a point that Philip Hammond was making to me, the former Chancellor. He said that this was what his concern was all the way along the line, that there was this fetishization of sovereignty, which would come at a very high economic cost, but without any real plans to, to do any significant divergence at the end of it. And as we know from the deal, if Britain does diverge too significantly from the EU model, there will be a price to be paid in terms of tariffs. So I think a lot will hinge on the work that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, is going to do, In the next few months. He's been asked by Boris Johnson to come up with a plan to make Britain more competitive in the post-Brexit era. And I think a lot of hope's resting on him to come up with some sort of coherent agenda.
1: Someone who has views on that is the former Prime Minister Theresa May. And she had some rather cutting marks in the House of Commons about this issue of sovereignty and how it plays into Britain's role in the world. Sovereignty does not mean isolationism. It does not mean we never accept somebody else's rules. It does not mean exceptionalism. Uh, And it is important as we go forward that we recognise we live in an interconnected world. And if the United Kingdom is going to play the role that I believe it should play in not just upholding but encouraging and promoting the rules-based
2: international order and in ensuring that we promote the interests and value and strengthen multilateral institutions like the World Trade Organisation, we must never allow
1: ourselves to think, as I fear some in this House do, that sovereignty means isolationism. Well, Ali, when you hear that and you think about what George was saying there, where do you see this debate going now in terms of how the UK is going to make use of these freedoms and how it's going to interact with not just the EU, but the rest of the world?
3: I think there's going to be a huge amount of actually um, internal pressure to not only just do the symbolic divergence, but be seen to be doing something substantive. And I worry a little bit that that's the tail wagging the dog rather than actually finding areas that really make sense where you can do something different. And I know that, you know, for meetings that we have with ministers um, and sort of other, you know, even in the sort of life sciences industry and in the pharmaceutical industry, I've sat around that table very recently and listened to big firms, small firms alike, are effectively pleading with ministers to say, we can do innovation better, but Please don't just do this for the sake of it, because we don't need to compound everything else that's going on. It's been a bit of a perfect storm at the moment going on between the restrictions expanding, border disruptions before Brexit, this coming into effect at the exact same time. You know, there is a desire, I think, amongst industry to make sure that we are not adding regulatory burdens just to be able to diverge, because that's not quite the way to do it. Having said that, you know, and I think that the Department for International Trade is going to be pretty busy, Not just, I think, doing the trade deals themselves, but it'd be interesting to see which way the UK takes on uh, what we call sort of trade remedies and effectively that sort of defensive measures. And we know that the EU is very active in that space. And uh, my hope is that the UK does differentiate itself in this area to some extent in that it sort of makes the UK look much more open to trade and not just sort of trying to compete for its own sake. So maybe that's one of the more optimistic areas to look at. But again, there's a lot of concern in industry that people are just going to now rush headlong to sort of be able to be seen to be different from the EU rather than looking at, you know, and, and the prime minister did say that to what extent his backbenchers agree, I don't know in practice. He did say in, in that statement in the in the Commons that this is about trying to cooperate, um, uh, you know, as independent sovereign neighbours now. Well, let's start looking at the areas for where that makes sense, because the one thing, and this is my idealism speaking, I would love to see is the UK being a bit of a bridge between different parts of the world rather than saying thinking it has to mimic America or mimic Australia and New Zealand.
1: And finally, let's just look at the issue that we all think is going to be the big one next year, which is the future of the union. Peter, could we begin by looking at Northern Ireland here? Because this is something you've written a lot about, this very complex protocol that was put in place to make sure there's never a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. There was... The joint committee, which put this into practice through the withdrawal agreement that Boris Johnson signed last year, that came to a conclusion, that's done. What practically is going to change now in terms of trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of GB? And where do you think that debate goes
2: next? It's an interesting one, isn't it? The extent to which the border in the Irish Sea, because everything that now goes into Northern Ireland is going to have to be compliant with the EU's customs code. The extent to which that impacts prices, choices, on the ground in Northern Ireland. Some of the Treasury forecasts when the protocol came out talked about material effects on, in terms of redundancies, in terms of price rises and choice, you know, a lack of choice. And that it will be interesting to see the extent to which that becomes a political football in Northern Ireland between the DUP and the Nationalist Parties. The extent to which Northern Ireland starts over time to find it easier simply to trade with Ireland Uh, And a lot of it will depend, I think, on the extent to which the new processes can be made operational without impacting the marketplace. You know, yes, the supermarkets have got an easement, but the wholesalers and the smaller traders, you know, are going to find it difficult, I think. And a lot of it will also depend on the way the EU decides to handle the implementation of the protocol. And I suspect they will be relatively light touch because they won't want to be seen to be causing trouble in the peace process. But it's definitely going to put change into the mix in an already volatile constitutional environment for Ireland. And
1: George, looking to north of the River Tweed, what's going to happen with Scotland with regards to Brexit? Because Nicola Sturgeon on Thursday night said, goodbye Europe, we'll be back soon, essentially. And the party's very hopeful of winning a thumping majority in the Holyrood elections in May. And they will obviously campaign on a basis of independence for Scotland with the basis of rejoining the EU, which will turn away some of the SNP's Brexit supporters. A third of the SNP vote are people who also Want to leave the EU, but it's one that may appeal to Remainers who are previously quite tied to the notion of the United Kingdom.
4: Yes, I mean you could see where that debate's leading, and it's going to be a big theme of British politics: the future of the union through 2021. We assume that the SNP is going to win a big majority at Holyrood in the May elections. Obviously. You know, a call to rejoin the EU throws up its own practical problems in terms of the independence movement, including about what you do with the border with England and trade across that border. Does it become a hard border? The euro question raises its head as well. But I guess the fascinating thing is what happens if the SNP wins that majority and then asks for a second referendum? I think the answer to that is Boris Johnson will carry on saying no, because he knows that Scotland votes to leave the union. That will be the end of his premiership, almost certainly. And then what happens? As Scotland go down the route of organising an illegal referendum, as they did in Catalonia, what happens then? So I think Brexit could be replaced by the future of the Union, the United Kingdom, as one of the big talking points of 2021.
1: And finally, of course, Boris Johnson does want to say Brexit is done, we're moving on. And I want to know from all of you to what extent you think that is true. My general sense is that obviously it will still be there, we'll still be writing about it and all these questions about where do we diverge, where do we stay the same and what do we do when the review clause in the deal come up. But generally, as a top order political issue, I think it definitely will slide down the running order. So do you agree with me or not? Ali, what do you reckon?
3: I, I think this is a good question for the government about, you know, to what extent do they want to be seen to be carrying on the arguments? Are we going to be like Russia, which wears its sanctions with a badge of honor and almost a, a welcomes sort of, you know, disputes where tariffs may apply because we like to be seen to be carrying on the argument with Europe? I don't think the EU itself wants to necessarily be seen to be wrong if it brings a dispute. So maybe it won't be as sort of active as we might think in that area and so there's going to be a sort of balancing act I think the Prime Minister has to apply. And just briefly on the SNP question, it was interesting, I heard in the last few weeks some people in the party talking about going for the EEA, the sort of single market Norway approach before they go for the EU. Objectively, that's not stupid because it deals with the fisheries issue. It deals with the, the in terms of the common fishing policy, it deals with the Euro issue. So it'd be interesting to see actually which way they go on that, whether those arguments are adjusted. Because obviously the more that the UK diverges, you could argue the more difficult it makes Scotland leaving the UK and prioritizing, managing prioritise its trade with the UK at the same time. But the last thing I would say on that is that we've had those arguments with Brexit and it's gonna be interesting to see how much they're able to turn them on their head when it comes to Scotland.
2: I think well, two points quickly. One is that this time last year, when Johnson had won a big fat majority and had got Brexit done we thought Brexit was going to disappear. And the government, you know, took a very adversarial approach. It'd be interesting to see whether this time, as the, you know, realities of Brexit start to bite, whether they continue to take an adversarial approach, you know, continue to kind of create this alternative reality, and whether the actual reality of all that red tape starts to cut through. I suspect that actually most people don't export and import, and most people don't sit in queues in the lorry. So if they want to let it die as a news agenda-driven Event They probably can. The only caveat to that is that Michael Gove, in order to make the thing run properly, has delayed for six months the full implementation on the stuff coming from the EU into the UK. And that has actually created a new cliff edge for July the 1st. So there is a kind of natural point at which, you know, business has to return to all these issues uh, if they haven't prepared fully because July the 1st is a new cliff edge for stuff coming from the EU. And finally, George,
1: what's your view on where the debate goes next? And where does it go for Labour as well? Because obviously they've backed Boris Johnson's Brexit deal. There were 37 rebels in that vote in the House of Commons this week. And really, Keir Starmer just wants to move on from it as quickly as possible. So will he be seeking to play it down, do you reckon?
4: That's one of the reasons why I think it probably will recede from the sort of front page headlines, at least for a while, because the public have had enough with it. And also it's a live rail in British politics that neither really the Conservative Party nor the Labour Party in particular want to touch at the moment. It's been a divisive issue. Certainly the Conservative Party is unified now, but the Labour Party that could try to exploit problems over Brexit, trading relations or whatever, want the issue to go away. So I suspect given it's harder for us to report on the sort of incremental damage that's been done to the economy by these new trade barriers, plus the lack of parliamentary votes around which to build our coverage... I suspect the public will get a bit of a break from this. But look, Europe's been a dominant feature in British politics for 50 years or more, hasn't it? And the idea it's going to disappear completely is for the birds.
1: I think we can probably all agree on that. Well, we've covered everything to do with Brexit there. George, Peter and Ali, thank you so much for joining us on New Year's Day. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And you could also leave us a nice New Year's comment or give us a positive rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh De The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Amy Keane. Until next time, thanks for listening and a very happy new year.